Hello and welcome to Winstrop Sales Podcast. My name is Will Chibbers and I'm joined by my co-host Vaseem Khan and we're here to interview some of the world's most influential sales leaders, revenue officers and executives on the planet. William, episode five, We Disrupt Sales Podcast. Who do we have on the show today and what are we going to talk about? Today we're sitting down with Silicon Valley veteran and industry legend Skip Miller. Skip is the founder and CEO of a company called M3 Learning, who's worked with the likes of Zoom, Google, Apple and Tableau. Today we're going to be talking through his view on where he feels like the sales management function is going wrong from working with hundreds of different revenue officers and sales leaders. We're going to be discussing everything from why he feels stage two of your sales process is make or break, the kind of questions you need to ask in your forecasting calls to qualify a deal, and why C-suite selling has to be the core of every single angle of your business. Brilliant. I can't wait. Let's get into the show. Skip, it's great to have on the show. It'd be great if you could kick off with a little bit about yourself and what got you into sales. Um, great, great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, uh, I've been in sales forever. I mean, I used to you know, sell when I was going to school at uh, sporting goods. So um, we were a small little sporting goods store and all the big sporting goods stores would call on the colleges and high schools and we would never compete. So I just went to the junior highs and the smaller schools and they had budget for sports and stuff. So, you know, just went, you know, did some route sales there through school and stuff and then got out of college and got a, got a sales job right out of college. I did you know, my first year or two did really well. I thought I was really good. So the next year, I think I finished 30% of my quota. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, because I thought I just knew everything and things would come to me and, you know, didn't sit back and say, Hey guys, it's all about the buyer. Let's, let's really work at this. Don't take things for granted, you know, get dirty, do the basic block and tackling all the time. And then went back up and did really well. So, you know, sales is kind of in my blood and stuff. And well, about 20 years ago, our company that I was at got bought and they wanted me to make, make a move back to the East coast of the United States. And I live in California and kind of like it here. So I'm like, nah, I'm going to see if I could start my own thing. So 20 years ago, I started my own company M3 learning and being in Silicon Valley, we've got a lot of good contacts, and it's just been growing from there. But what's exciting is every customer we do business with, I just learned so much about sales process and what works and doesn't work for what buyers. So, you know, I really consider myself almost a student of the game because I'm always exposed to new different ways of, of doing things and new approaches and new ideas rather than we've always done it this way. So it's been fun. Fantastic. And I think you've got a unique experience where you've seen inside the lens of all, loads of different companies. I guess the first thing I'd ask is you've met with loads of CROs and helped loads of senior sales leaders. From all those conversations and projects you've done, what do you reckon the biggest areas are in terms of problems that they're looking to solve when it comes to their sales organization? Well, people always call us and say, we want to shorten our sales cycle and increase our, our average sales prices. So, I mean, that, that, that's just indigenous of, of a situation. I think, uh, well, that one of the big things we see is the sales management function, be it first line, second line, whatever else, it is so focused on getting deals across the finish line. So it, let's just take a five-stage sale, you know, initial interest, discovery, presentation, demo, propose, decide, close, whatever you want to call it. The answer should be a lot earlier. So we're telling people, guys, if you're a sales manager, you typically coach to a sales rep this way. How's it going? Good. 
Need anything? No. Call me when you need me. Okay. And that's not coaching. Good coaching is try to get things done earlier, like in stage two, rather than stage five. So in stage two, just don't say, how's it going? You know, have some sort of, of script. Our discovery process includes this. Have we done this? Have we got these numbers? Have we got this? Rather than, did you give them a presentation? Yeah. How'd they like it? Great. I mean, so the good companies we see are much more inspective in the early stages of the process. They've got defined what we call give and gets so that the customer's got to put some sweat equity into it, not just us doing everything. And when companies have got that, They've got cleaner funnels. They kick the maybes out of their funnel and they have access to the C-suite earlier because they've got good C-suite questions, just not regurgitated, you know, user buyer questions. And we call them above the line, below the line, the above the line, more C-suite, the below the line, the more user buyer. And, and they've just done a really good job of understanding the buy sales process early than most companies. Yeah, I really want to go into the discovery side. Before we even do that, I think there's something that you said that's so interesting in terms of the value proposition and how you get the right message out to your buyers. From your experience, like what, what's been your biggest takeaway for companies in terms of how they look at finding the right message to the, the C-suite and find the right message to their buyers? Well, think about it, right? I mean, they call it discovery, they call it disco, whatever they call it. And you take a salesperson you give them, you know, three hours of training and a book that thick, and it's all about us, all about our stuff, how we compete against the competition, all this stuff, and then you expect them to do a good job of the C-suite. At stage two, we believe buyers split into two different value flags. The below the line, what are the features and functions and feeds and speeds and how do you compete and stuff, all important stuff, and the above the line. I've got a $50 million problem. And if you guys can make a dent in this, I mean, I'm expecting 100% growth in our, in our revenue stream for next year, and I've got 60 in the bank. I don't know where the 40 is going to be. But if you guys can just make a dent, so we call those solution boxes. Solution box A is your stuff, the price you charge. You know, here's what we're going to charge you. We're going to charge you 50 grand. And for 50 grand, you get all this stuff because that's what your below-the-line buyer has wanted. And then the above-the-line buyer is sitting there going, you know, I've got these initiatives and I've got problems with them. So if you guys can make a dent, that's great. What we see a lot of is salespeople go to the below-the-line buyer. They talk about us. We talk about us. We get really good feedback. So then we get a success pattern. We've developed a success pattern that these slides, this demo, this thing works great because I've got great feedback from the customer. It works. So then we take it to the C-suite to go above the line, and they're like, what the hell is that? I mean, <laughs> what, I, I'm sure that's great. And the analogy Will we use is we call it the printer story. My office manager wants to buy a printer. She's concerned about how many pages a minute. I mean, how, how, you know, can you put a whole ream of paper in there? You know, she's concerned with the features and functions of the printer. I don't even know what a ream is. So it's great about the printer. What I know about the printer is, I've got, you know, my cost of the workbooks for our classes is running about 14 to $15 per workbook. And if we can get that cost down 20, 30%, I'm happy. So a new printer would be one way 
of making a dent in that cut cost. There are other ways too. have cheaper employees work on it or or do something different with our, with distribution. So it doesn't cost me so much in shipping. Yeah, I love that. I think some really actionable tips in terms of look at the 10K, find out how to read the right financial reports and just listen to customers at the sweet seat level to see how they're talking. And so what do you typically advise managers look to train their sales reps in what a great discovery call looks like? Typically, you've got two goals, to educate and to validate. Educate is getting customers to fully understand what you do. Validate is to have them take ownership of it. And typically, what I see people do in discovery or even in a presentation is do a, you know, a classic show up, throw up, and then go, what do you think, huh? You know, so as a next step, we'll really get into using our stuff. I'd much rather have the customer talk about what's going on than us. Um, I'm a firm believer that the magic number is 12, that your kids listen to you up until 12. After 12, they don't listen to you anymore. It's got to be their idea. Customers are the same way. You know, guys, I mean, this is what we do. Let me ask you a question. How would you use it? You know, in six months from now, if you had this, what would be different for you? It is much more powerful than, here's what our research show. Our research shows that in six months, you'll be doing this, this, and this. I feel great. The customer's taken no ownership in that. This is a cultural thing. Teach your sales reps to validate. So what would you do with that, man? I don't know. Rather than, and here's how you're going to make money with it. Our ROI indicator that you'll pay back within 1.6 years, that you, oh, stop it. You know, the numbers have got to come from them. With my kids, when I told them what to do in sports up until 12, they listened to me. After, after 12 years old, dad, we do it differently. <laughs> and, and they were probably right. So the answers have got to come this way. Yeah. I guess putting that into life then, as a manager looking to find out whether a, discover, a good discovery call has been done, if you could ask three questions to every sales rep after discovery call, what would you look for to understand whether or not they've got the right information and, and, and the job's been done, really? Three big questions. Number one, what's causing them to make a change? Not what's causing them to look at our stuff. What's caused them to do something they hate to do? And people hate to change. People hate to change. That's why we still use our same toothpaste and same soap that we did when we were a kid. We hate to change. Something's caused that above the line buyer to go, okay, we got to make a change. What is it? That's question number one. Question two, what's the size of the problem? I, I want numbers. And if there's not a problem, if I don't have a problem, I don't have to fix it. And if I don't have to fix anything, why am I talking to you? So if they've got a problem, ATLs always know the size of the problem. The below the line buyer is like, this is a key initiative. This is really a big issue. I mean, I can't deal with big. Give me the size of the problem. We're expecting $100 million. We got 60 in the bank. We got a $40 million problem, $40 million euro, $40 million problem, whatever it may be. ATLs always talk in numbers. So my second question to any rep in stage two is, what is the size of the problem? And what are the size of the problems? Because I want two or three trains, not just one. So big question number one, what's caused you to make a change? Big question number two, right? What's the size of the problem? And big question number three, what's the implementation date? What's what we call the I date? What date are they going to go live, up and running, in production? Contract sign, that's like a sales term. I date is an ownership transfer term. Okay, I see us putting this together. We're going to launch on September 4th. Well, why the 4th? 
well, because this has to happen, this has to happen. If they don't take ownership to a date. So when I look at a forecast, I see all these closed dates, you know, which are the, you know, 31st of February, which of course there's no 31st of February. So it's like all these contract sign dates mean nothing to the buyer. The buyer has got to have an implementation date. Do you care when you buy the birthday gift or when the birthday is? The sales clerk cares when you buy the gift. They don't care when the birthday is. Do you care when you buy the vacation or when you go on it? Buyers always care about the I date. So if you're in a QBR with me, number one, what's causing them to make a change? Number two, what's the size of the problem? Number three, what's the I date? I guess from a qualification perspective, you know, so if you if you break each three of those questions down, right, it's helping you qualify. So if you look at what's the size of the problem, if the guy can't quantify the size of the problem, you kind of know that he might not be the economic decision maker or he might not be the technical decision maker. So you, you're kind of understanding, right, okay, we, we need to go away and find that information out. You know, if you look at the third one in terms of implementation date, it's, it's, it's a much softer way to say, right, when, when are we exchanging contracts? Because what you're doing is you, you're, you're kind of building a triptych plan in your customer's mind to say, okay, well, we want to we, we go live by December. Okay, what's driving December? How much time have you left for testing? Oh, we've only left two weeks. Well, why have you only left two weeks? Typically, customers need six weeks. So you can start driving the agenda in terms of when a contract needs to be signed, but also start positioning yourself as a, I guess, as a thought leader in the, in, in the mindset of the customer. To your point, buyers buy backwards. So if I know I've got a, this birthday is, is the 1st of October, I better find out what I'm going to buy because it could take two weeks to ship. So I better ask somebody what they want. And buyers always buy backwards. And when you start buying backwards, the customer goes, I thought that it was going to take a week. I didn't know it was going to take six weeks. I mean, holy smokes. And all of a sudden, you know, I thought I had a month to make the decision. I got like three days if we want to meet this schedule. So working on that buyer's buyback theory, but always buy back from the implementation date, not contract sign date, because contract sign date is typically a sales term, not a buyer term. And what do you think the responsibility is from a CRO and sales leader perspective from a tool set, whether that be value prop or whether that be sales tools, to make people able to, to do those three areas that you talked about? Constant coaching, constant content coaching, because our net reaction, how I'm being judged as a sales leader is besides revenue, what do you want to talk to me about? I mean, that, that's what they're being paid on. So we take everything from a what's come across the finish line rather than that's important, but if I do the good stuff early, the other one kind of takes care of itself. I mean, geez, right? So if if we really want to have managers do a good job of having great funnels, having clean qualification deals, all the good stuff, it's got to be, we got to qualify early. I qualify deals on energy, not product fit too much. Energy to me is the customers acknowledge that they have to make a change. They've understood the problem and quantified it. And they've obviously identified an implementation date and have aligned resources around it. I got that. They're, they're making a decision for somebody. And hopefully if I do a good job, I'll, I'll win more than I lose. The, the recent study I saw was fascinating. Of 100 deals in the, in the quarter, if you have 100 deals in the quarter, 25 to 35% will say yes. 25 to 35% will say no. And about half will be maybes. Yeses are great, noes are great, maybes will kill you. Because all maybes do is sit in the funnel, suck resource, they keep slipping, and you give hope. And as you're hoping those, you're not doing things to backfill your funnel. 
So get rid of the maybes is only a stage two, stage three thing, not across the finish line thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, so I, I guess actionably, when I, so when you look at a lot of people that are probably sitting there now thinking there are quite a few deals in our pipeline that we can't answer those questions for, how aggressive and how rigorous do you need to be around those three areas in the early stage when perhaps you've got a business that doesn't have a big lead flow and you've got to do a lot of education? Like how do you how do you balance that that mix of rigorous qualification? But yeah, you've got to have customers who are willing to work with you, right? Because they're going to be a no anyway. So we've got to, you you got to put together some ideas of what you want the customers to do. We call it homework assignments. Okay, we're going to do the discovery. Here's the five things we're going to cover. Could you circle star highlight the top two or three things so I can make sure we maximize your time next Tuesday? If they don't want to even do that, I find it hysterical that above the line buyers, CMO, CRO, CIO, consistently put together five, 10, 15 slide decks for their executive management meeting they're meeting with every quarter. Have you ever asked a C-level person for their slide deck? I've got a ton of them. To them, they do it all the time. And they'd be happy to show you because that shows their initiatives and their gaps. So why not ask a customer, hey, guys, to really make sure we're on target, I'm sure you put together a slideshow. We will sign an NDA. But could you kind of share those slides? The below-the-line buyer is going to go, oh, no, we can't. No. The above-the-line buyer is going, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to share them to you. So things like that can really help you qualify. And I just call them homework assignments. If they're willing to do a simple homework assignment, yes, here's the three things I want to see next week, then I'm fine. If they don't respond to the email going, no, just show us what you have, I mean, that's probably telling you something different. Hmm. Skip, um, a, lot, a lot of the CROs we speak to outside of forecasting, the number one challenge we hear is you know, our top of funnel isn't big enough, right? So, and, and you've grown up in Silicon Valley. You've seen Silicon Valley from day dot to where it is now so what what have you seen as the most effective ways of prospecting and generating top of funnel like what what works so i've got a new book coming out called outbounding i hate writing books and my publisher wanted another book and the problem i see is a lot of aes and sdrs are getting a ton of inbound leads and those are starting to dry up and now they got to outbound and i have a conversation with an ae that says Hey, how's your outbounding going? Oh, good. I, I sent a guy an email last week. I'm waiting to hear back. Well, that's not outbounding, okay? That's, that's just not really good. The best organizations we see are insisting on 10 to 20% time on outbounding, and they inspect against it. So it's not number of dials, right? It's, it's quite strategic. Here in your territory are the 30 accounts we want to penetrate, your job is to find out the top five executive personas we want to go after. What's been your cadence and sequencing? You know, a good 14-day sequence with 10 touches is great. You know, wh- wh- how are we doing those things? We've got a great customer who spends an hour a day, an hour a day going after a set of 25 people. In a two-week window, they 10 touch it. In a two-week window, they take that 25 out, they put a new 25. And to do a good sequence, it takes an hour a day of time. I mean, that's not a lot of time. But great cultures are just insistent on it rather than all the, I haven't gotten the time to prospect. I have never been 
taught to do it well. Trust me, I have enough in my funnel to make the number, which we all know you don't. So great organizations allocate specific time frames and inspections to and, and set goals for outbounding rather than you know you need to outbound more. Yes, I do. Well, you better get to it. Okay, I will. And then nobody ever does it because everybody hates the prospect. So the best organizations, they have sequence and timing discussions, they have content discussions, what works and what doesn't work. You know, I'm getting a 30% open rate. I'm getting a 5% open rate. Well, what are you doing right? And it really doesn't take more than an hour, hour and a half a day or, you know, an afternoon, one afternoon on a Zoom meeting with a bunch, with, with some of your reps. So the best ones have got really good cadence, sequencing, and messaging to their outbounding methods. And that keeps the top of funnel really healthy rather than just get a whole bunch of below the line tire kickers and say, oh, I'm full now. Just very quickly, just I just want to ask a bit a, a bit about the cadence piece. So for you, Skip, what 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 is a great cadence? You know, is it a phone call, email, phone call, LinkedIn message? What is a great See, now, cadence? So now, now with the whole pandemic thing, right? You can't send direct mail because nobody's in the office. You really can't call people because you can't get to the switchboard. People have got their their cell phones. Although cell phones now are fair game. The only thing you really have is email, LinkedIn, and a phone call. Those are your only kind of things you got at your disposal, and it's hard to get people's cell phone numbers. So LinkedIn, sending videos through LinkedIn. Videos through LinkedIn work great as long as they're nice and short because people will open them because they are assuming that they've already been through a spam filter. You know, if it's coming from LinkedIn, it's not like it's junk mail. So email, LinkedIn, and phone calls are the best. The best, and voicemails, of course but voicemails that are directional. Hi, John, Skip, call me back. You're not going to get a call back. Hi, John, Skip, I sent you an email yesterday. I'll send it again. Please look at that one attachment, especially on page two. That was really important. I mean, that's going to work better. 10 to 12 touches in a two-week window are the best cadences and sequences. Best emails, under 120 words. Nobody's going to read more than 120 words. Fantastic. And the best way the best way to write an email, since seventy percent of emails are open up on mobile devices, write the email on your mobile device. You will end up writing it as the buyer wants to be read. If you're at your laptop, you got to write a freaking novel, and then you got to look at it on your on your mobile device, going, "That's a lot," and you're just going to blow it off. So, uh, another good tip. Just have your people write emails on your mobile device. There's been such a rise recently of, of like tools at your uh, at your beck and call from Sales Loft, Outreach, and loads of different mobile directories and things like that. What do you what do you see that the position is in terms of? Do you think there's a big metric on companies that are successful that use those tools and companies that aren't? It's a bell curve. Some people bought the tools and haven't even opened them in a year. Some people are trying to meddle between. You know, I've got Gong, I've got Chorus, I've got Sales Loft, I've got Outreach, I've got this, I've got that. And nobody's putting it together. So the sales and people are throwing their hands up going, I quit. <laughs> so, okay, we'll just stick with, we'll stick with CRM. That's all we're going to do. So it's, it's kind of fun to see them. The best we've seen spend a good amount of time really redoing their sales process before they implement the technology. So you can't have a sales process that does not include like an outreach and then just add outreach and expect the same thing. A dynamic sales process has always been one that should be looked at. And that takes kind of plan. 
So I highly suggest that the CRO and his or her top lieutenants once a quarter identify, okay, this is our sales process based upon COVID, based upon us adding outreach, you know, adding chorus, whatever it may be, what's going to be different? And nothing is not a good answer. So if they're not looking at the process, because this is what people are supposed to be coaching to, if they're not constantly dynamic, most companies we go into, I look at their sales process, you know, it's the poster on the wall that hasn't been updated in three years. And you're like, really? So the best companies we've seen when they introduce technologies like the ones you mentioned, say, before we start buying this, what's our sales process now? Once we make this investment, what's our sales process going to be? Okay, now we've got a game plan. Let's make the investment. Awesome. Skip, so my takeaways from our, our talk so far, three major things that all CMOs, uh, all, uh, three major things all CROs need to start doing, have a clear value proposition that targets both above the line and below the line. From a discovery perspective, make sure you qualify early, qualify, 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 and qualify early in terms of why change, size of the problem, what's the implementation date, and then lastly, everybody needs to be prospecting. Right? Outbound, outbound, outbound. Have a clear mechanism of quantifiable cadences, 10 to 12 touch points per person over a two-week window and move forward. Is, is that fair? That's a great summary. I'm sitting there. I'm impressed. That's, that's a great summary. That's exactly very well said. No, it's a good summary to say, guys, there's a lot out there. I mean, this whole you know, sell from home is going to start trying on people a lot. You'll see... You know, salespeople leave companies, easy to switch companies. You know, I have to go to the office and blah, blah, blah. You know, adapt or die, right? And if you're not tackling, you know, there's, there's without a doubt, sales cycles are shorter now than they were because access to ATLs is easier because, because I've got different ways to get the ATLs. If you're sitting there saying my sales cycles length is the same length it was 12 months ago, you, you need some work. <laughs> Good changing. Love it. That's been brilliant. Skip, thank you so much for your time. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the show.